And I have the privilege of doing the next message in our series called Summer Rules. Summer Rules. We are going through the Ten Commandments. Many of you know that. It's been really amazing to look at something that to many of us we heard when we were little and kids and sound like a, a, a lot of do's and don'ts and that kind of thing. And hopefully you've seen that there is so much in what God was saying and doing when he gave his people, Israel, these 10 commandments, these 10 rules. And at the end of the day, at the bottom line, it was basically to give us, as the church as well, our best life. And so that's been awesome. So we've gone through the first five. Let me just kind of go through those real quickly with you with the little titles we gave them. Commandment number one, no other gods. Commandment number two, no fake gods. Commandment number three, no greater name. Commandment number four, no greater work. And then last week, commandment number five, honor your parents. Now we're doing something a little different this morning because I'm actually going to do the seventh commandment. So you're going to be hearing the sixth next week. Kondo had a, he was supposed to preach and he had a last minute schedule issue so uh, so we're going to do number seven, and then Condor will be back next week, and he'll share the sixth commandment. So let me just put it right out there what it is. Seventh commandment is this, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. So yes, that's my assignment for the day. Praise God. <laughs> this is really good. I hope you had a chance to hear Rick Neer's message last week. It was so good. Rick did such a great job, honor your father and mother. And um, one of the things Rick did that I thought was so helpful is he defined honor and obedience. And he talked about how there's a bit of a difference between the two. And I thought that was very helpful. So I'm going to give you a definition of two key words in what I will be sharing with you this morning. Here's the first one. The first word is adultery. Adultery is voluntary sexual activity between a married person and someone other than his or her spouse. Let me go on. The Hebrew word translated adultery means literally breaking wedlock. God describes the desertion of his people to other gods as adultery. We, all, all, we also know the word idolatry but God also calls it adultery as well. So my favorite little Christian website where I go for a lot of information, godquestions.org is a great website. Word two, my second word is fornication. Fornication is a term used in the Bible for any sexual conduct or impure sexual activity that occurs outside of the bonds of a marriage covenant. So fornication very much is the umbrella large term for any sexual sin. And under that umbrella is adultery as it relates to those who are married. Here's what I felt as I really thought and prayed about this. Here's what I thought I would um, like to do. I want to answer two big questions this morning, okay? And my first question is this. Why is marriage unique and sacred, according to the Bible. Why is it unique? In other words, the marriage relationship is unlike any other relationship. 
And why is it sacred? And my very, very simple answer is because it's a covenant. A covenant. A covenant covenant is more than a commitment. A covenant is more than just a promise. Let me talk about that a bit as we go to Genesis chapter 2. That'll be one of our main passages this morning. Genesis chapter 2. And these verses will be up on the screen. I'm going to read verses 22 to 24. And again, those of you that know the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis know that that's the creation of the world, the creation of the man and the woman, as we'll see. And then it wasn't until chapter 3 that sin entered the world. So what's happening in chapter 2? This is all what we call pre-fall, pre-fall into sin of mankind. This is God's perfect design for man and woman, okay? Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Interesting, the word leave, some of us know the term cleave. Another uh, couple translations use that word. NIV here says united. These two words are terms commonly used in the context of a covenant in the Bible, any kind of Old Testament covenant, indicating complete fidelity. That means uncompromised faithfulness to that covenant and to that individual with whom you have made that covenant. Perfect, complete, uncompromised faithfulness to that covenant. Now, I wanted to know, it was important to me to know, where else does this verse, this verse 24, man leaves his father and mother united with his wife, they become one flesh. Where, is, where else does that appear in scripture? And it appears two times in the New Testament. And I think it'd be good for us to take a quick look because this is not just Adam and Eve. This is not just before, the, before sin entered the world. This is the model because it's a covenant that God established at the very beginning of human life and history to be the model for what marriage is, okay? So the passage is Matthew chapter 19, verses three through six. Again, it'll be up on the screen. Here's what we read. Some Pharisees came to him, him as Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is using covenant language here the most deep, powerful uh, kind of relationship there can be. So what we can conclude is that adultery is a betrayal 
of the marriage covenant. That's what it is. Well, there's another reason why marriage is unique and sacred in addition to the fact that it is a covenant to God before God with another person is that, secondly, it's the earthly picture of Christ and his church. It's the earthly picture of Christ and his church. You know, when I really, years ago, began to meditate and reflect on that passage in Ephesians 5, and that's where we're going to go in just a moment, but when I began to think that the earthly picture of Jesus and his church, the love of Jesus Christ for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, who, is, who are us, people who have given their life to Jesus Christ, confessed their sin, received him as Savior, and are part of his church, is marriage, is the husband and wife. The husband reflecting Christ, the wife reflecting the bride of Christ, the church. That is powerful. My friends, let that sink in this morning, that that is the ultimate purpose and goal of your marriage, is to reflect Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. That has deep implications. It really does. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. Let me read a few verses here and then share some thoughts. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 29 to 33. The apostle Paul writes, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, here's the verse, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. But I thought the theme was marriage. It is. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Again, I want us to see that our marriages are the earthly reflection of what the world should see in Christian marriages about how Jesus loves his church. Verse 33, however, let each one of you also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I need to give you a little more context here because I think this is really important. So if we go back to verse 21, we're not gonna go there, but I'll just, I'll just share this with you real quickly. If we go back to verse 21, verse 21 sets up this whole passage about marriage is the earthly picture of Christ in the church. It's like husband, wife, Christ, and church are just interchanged with one another through this passage in Ephesians 5. Verse 21 says, and be subject to one another, husband and wife, in the fear of Christ. That's the context. And then as you go on in this passage, you'll see that wives have a specific role in their in their uh, marriage, and husbands have a specific role as well. He goes on to say, wives are to be subject to the leadership of their husband. Obviously, love him and all of those other wonderful things we do, but God has called men, please hear me, God has called men in the marriage relationship to be the head, to be the leader of the home, and spiritual leader is included in that. Husbands are just this, this is the easy one. Love Christ is, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I am being very facetious. That is not easy. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
and literally gave himself up. Does that sound like the cross to you? And gave himself up for her. So you see why this beautiful picture of marriage demonstrates to the world around us when we're talking Christian marriage of the love of Jesus Christ for his bride, his church. Incredible. Again, I want you to ponder that. And I will say this again. I've said it, but I want to say it again. That the ultimate calling and purpose of Christians in their marriage is to reflect Jesus Christ and his church. There are other wonderful blessings and purposes of marriage, but reflecting Christ and his church vastly supersedes romantic pleasure and experience. Okay, now, I want to get super practical this morning. So with that as our foundation, that um, marriage is unique, marriage is sacred because it's a covenant to God and to people before God and to one another, and because it is the earthly reflection or picture of Christ in his church. Back to the command, do not commit adultery. And as I've already said, I will say again, adultery is a betrayal of your marriage covenant. That's what it is. So here's my second question. How can married couples remain faithful to their marriage covenant to each other? What's the strategy? What's the plan? I got some thoughts I want to share with you. Actually, I have five what I hope are super practical, helpful thoughts about how we can stay deeply, deeply faithful and committed to our covenant if we are married, okay? Number one is this, nurture your relationship regularly. Nurture your marriage regularly. Here's why I chose the word nurture. (laughs) You know, here's a good, let me give you a good example of nurturing. Um, My wife loves gardening, flowers, landscaping, and it's really beautiful what we have. It is at home because she nurtures them. She's been gone. She gets home today. She's been helping my daughter take care of some of her kids while my son-in-law is on a missions trip and my daughter's working on a master's and all of that. Uh, She nurtures the plants. It's almost like they're people. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I had to do that for nine days. I was pretty scared to death. Because I'm a pretty good dad and a pretty good grandpa about nurturing, but with plants, I have no idea how how much too much water is. I tend to just want to, you know, I mean, I am just not good at it. She's amazing. I mean, everything just is green and beautiful and, and that kind of thing. She knows exactly what is needed to make sure that our, our landscape is just beautiful. It really is. And so that's the idea of nurturing. Nurturing takes incredible attention. Nurturing takes knowing when and what to do. Hopefully we nurture our children. But I want to talk about nurturing your marriage relationship. Think about that. I wonder if that's a word we would, dis- a word we would use to describe our marriage. We really nurture. We care for. We, we help each other grow 
in every way. We are helping each other flourish. That's nurturing. Here's a verse, 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live, your, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So NIV here, this translation we use, husbands in the same way, be considerate. That's really not the best word. A better translation is uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. And as I've shared this with men over the years, because I talk about this a lot, is be a student of your wife. Seriously. Be a super perceptive student of your wife. That's what he's saying. Know what makes her incredibly happy. Know what makes her really sad or really mad or whatever she might get or be. Know what just blows her mind that, you know, he really does love me. Know what she's like when she's super stressed out. Know her. Study her. Guys, be a student of your wife. Seriously. Um, It's what this verse is about. Now, when it uses the word... Some translations say weaker vessel. This one uh, specifically uses, uses another word. Um, anyway, the idea is that she's not weaker because she's not as intelligent or talented. Guys, show of hands. How many of you, your wife definitely is smarter and more talented than you? Guys, you better raise your hand. Okay, this is, this is like pretty rhetorical. Maybe more than a finger, your whole hand. Okay, it's true. It is really true. For the vast majority of us, we know that. So not weaker in terms of less in any way. Here's what it is. She is more vulnerable because she's under your leadership. She's in a more vulnerable position in the family because God has called you guys, us, to be the leaders. So know her. Study her. Make sure you know how to help her flourish. In fact, to me, that's the greatest thing, and I believe this, and as I've done a lot of premarital counseling and and talked to a lot of primarily guys, um, here's the greatest thing you can do for your wife. Absolutely, hands down. Help her in every way to become all of the woman God wants her to be, period. And in order to do that for me, I have to study her. I have to know her. I have to know seasons when she's going through a really, really hard time. I need to know when I can just be with her and rejoice with her, okay? So this idea of nurturing is so critical. Now, let me give you some super practical ways to do this. Um, Date each other. Wow. You mean that didn't end when we got married? No, guys. Sorry, I tend to talk to guys. I pick on the men. Okay, guys, you can handle it. I know you can. Date each other. Carve out time, whatever that is for you, whether it's weekly, twice a month, once a month, whatever it might be, to go do something together. Guess what? Without the kids. Without the kids. Do it. Make it a priority. Extremely important. Celebrate your anniversaries. I'm not just talking a card. Dinner's good. Whatever else she likes, flowers, I don't know. 
But you know what's even better? Get away. Get away for a night. Get away for a weekend. That's been a really high priority for my wife and me. We've done that. And on our, by the way, you don't have to clap because first service did. Kathy and I have been married 44 years. We have. The grace of Jesus and an amazing woman. There we go. That is the formula right there. It really is. But we have made it a point since probably our 20th anniversary to do something super special on the 20th, 25th, 30th, 35th, 40th. We got something incredibly special for next year because it's like we want to celebrate God's goodness in bringing us together and helping us to live our lives with one another. So my point is one of the main ways you nurture your marriage is you spend time together enjoying one another without the hassles of everyday life, which is just filled with chaotic activity, right? It is. I get it. You have to prioritize it. Nurture your relationship on a regular basis. Um, I was going to say one more thing. Try to take 30. If you, don't, if you don't spend time with each other, like talking on a daily basis, carve out 30 minutes. No phone, no iPad, no TV on, no laptop, and talk to each other. Eyeball to eyeball. Try it. Well, there's not much to talk about. Well, think stuff up, you know? I mean, just, just hey, honey, how's your day? Fine, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Learn to do that. Carve that time out. And you will find that you'll learn to have a lot of stuff to talk about. Here's what happens in a lot of marriages. And it happens in Christian marriages. And it breaks my heart. But I see it all the time. Couples become business partners. That's tragic. When he said the two become one. The covenant of marriage is not just about, okay, you make sure you pick up the kids and I'll do the, you know, I'll do the finances and we kind of pass each other constantly and there is no nurturing of your relationship. Don't go there. Because you know what? The enemy, our ultimate spiritual enemy, Satan, will get a foothold right in there, won't he? And it can be disastrous. You're not business partners. You are one flesh. The most unique human relationship there is. I gotta keep moving. Let me give you number two. Number two is what I, here's the phrase I'm using. Safeguard your minds with God's word. Again, we're, we're trying to say, how can we be faithful to our marriage covenant our entire life? Number two, safeguard your minds with God's word. First Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now earlier I gave you a couple definitions. The word immorality is the word fornication, which is the Greek word pornea, okay? From which we get our English word pornography. There aren't too many times less than a handful of times in the New Testament where the phrase is used, this is the will of God. It's used a number of times, but not very many. Look at this one. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and very specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality, period. This is the will of God. This is the mandate of God. 
Now, the word sanctification simply means your growth in Christ. Sanctification is one of those theological terms that basically means that day after day, more and more, year after year, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. You are growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You are growing spiritually. A big part of our sanctification, my, my brothers and sisters, is staying morally pure. That's a very profound key part of it. Some of you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and how Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Joseph replied to her, listen to his words. He says, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Adultery is a sin against God. Because adultery is a betrayal of our marriage covenant. And I love the fact that Joseph, this young man, um, and an, had been taken captive. Many of you know the story of Joseph. He had such a sensitivity to wanting to honor God in his life. His conscience had been so sensitized of wanting to honor Jehovah God that even in secret, even in private, he, he fled. And many of you know he got falsely accused even after he fled. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The word of God is so incredibly important, my brothers and sisters, in keeping our hearts, our minds sensitive to wanting to do what's godly. Do you think we have voices messages just bombarding us every day, we do. You certainly know that. And it's not this message. But that's the message of the word of God. Practical ways, read your Bible every day. <laughs> read your Bible every day. Sound like a teacher. Please do, please do that. There's nothing, probably very few things more important in your life than reading your Bible. And I think every day, and that's not my opinion. We're supposed to dwell in the word of God. We are supposed to ponder the word of God. We're supposed to let our thoughts meditate on truth constantly. That's in scripture. And I'll tell you what, the number one way to safeguard your behavior is to fill your mind with the truth of God's word. It makes a profound difference. And that, uh, that means you have to prioritize it. You have to prioritize it. Can you carve out 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, whatever it might be, to read a chapter, to read something out of Psalms, to read something out of Proverbs, whatever it might be. Make it daily. Make it daily. It's so powerful to put God, God's word in your mind, in your heart, and to dwell on it. One of the reasons why I'm a morning person to begin with, but one of the reasons why I like to be in God's word first thing in the morning is because it can really set the tone for my day in so many ways. And I also say I'm a nicer person because of that, I think. <laughs> Read your Bible. Here's a second. Be involved in a Bible study, both of you. Um, and my brothers don't say, well, you know, she's a student in the family, so I'm not really into reading. I'm like, What? You don't read? I have men tell me that. I'm not really into reading. Dude, really? Okay. 
there are these audio, you know, apps and opportunities for you to listen to, words, to, to the word of God. So you have a commute to work, find something where you can listen to God's word. Some of us like to work out. Plug in, listen to the word of God. Don't just check, check up on sports scores. I know that's tempting. Maybe you like to work outside or work on your car, or whatever you like to do. Listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. Fill your mind with God's word. Because there is no doubt that the way we safeguard our minds is with the word of God. It needs to be dwelling in us constantly. Okay, that's my second. Here's my third. Prepare yourselves for blind sides in your marriage. What do I mean by that? I mean the phrase I've heard men say. Adultery. Never. That would never happen to me. Never. You just set yourself up. You just set yourself up. I have heard men over the years, you know, I've been in ministry for 40 years, and, and I have, and I know I'm picking on the guys, but I'm happy to do that because um, this is relevant to all of us, obviously. But uh, who would say things like that? Never, never, never. And then somewhere down the road, you hear of a massive moral failure. And it is heartbreaking. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 are so powerful and so important verses. Paul writes, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful. Or one of the translations, take heed that you don't fall. In other words, don't be arrogant, don't be prideful, that you're fine and you would never fall into sexual sin. Verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Can I tell you what the way out is, in my opinion? The number one. Cry out to the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help me to, to walk away. Help me to run. Help me to think about something different than what I'm beginning to pursue and this path I'm starting to go down. Practical ways to do this. Guard your eyes. Guard your heart. Guard your fantasies. Be ruthless with what you look at and what your eyes linger on. Maybe even more importantly, I can say this to you. Realize that you are, can be, developing an emotional bond with someone who's not your spouse. I have to tell you, many of the stories that I have been told about brothers in my life, Christian brothers in my life who have had massive moral failures, is it was the emotional bond <laughs> My observation is that the greatest seduction is more often not visual. It's often a person who notices you, flirts with you, makes you feel heard and value, and that's during the season when your spouse isn't checking any of those boxes for you. That is dangerous. That is the danger zone. Here's a solution. Leave. Quit. End whatever is going on. Flee is the word the Bible uses. 
Prepare yourself for blindsides. And it almost sounds like an oxymoron to say prepare for a blindside. Uh, prepare for the attacks. They come, the temptations. They're incredibly subtle at times. And you can find yourself going down a path of destruction if you're not prepared. Here's my fourth one. Let God heal your heart. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Christians blow it. Christians do. Christians commit adultery. They do. Not all, not the, hopefully the majority even, but they do. So the question is, and again, I've had primarily men, brothers in Christ, come and talk to me. What in the world do I do? I just, I just completely, completely blew it. I love Galatians 6.1. It's one of my favorite verses about how we treat one another as Christians. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should, keyword, restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Restore. God forgives. Is adultery a betrayal? Absolutely. Is sin against God, is it a sin against God and your spouse? Absolutely. Is it devastating and destructive? Absolutely. Can it be forgiven? Absolutely. Why do I say that? Because of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from, say this word with me, all unrighteousness. I cannot answer, say this is your pastor, one of your pastors and your brother in Christ, I cannot answer the issue for every single couple who has experienced the tragedy of adultery in their marriage, whether or not their marriage will last. And each couple before God needs to decide whether or not it will or won't. Here's what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. From reading the word of God and observing many lives of people over the decades I've been involved in ministry, I do know that bitterness, a desire for revenge, and ongoing hatred will eventually destroy you. Paul calls it defiling to others and to those around us. I can't imagine the pain, I can't, of, of what people go through when adultery occurs. But God does forgive. And in some cases, God is able to bring healing even into those marriages. But that's between you and the Lord, what that looks like for you. I gotta give you my fifth and my final practice for maintaining a Christ-honoring marriage and this one's the most important. Pray with each other and pray for each other. 
pray with each other and pray for each other. I love 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And I thought about this in the context of marriage. Paul writes, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Can you imagine if we lived these out in our marriage relationship, how beautiful that would be? Awesome. Pray with each other and pray for each other. Pray with each other on a regular basis. Let me tell you what I believe happens. I do. It's happened with my wife and me, and I I think other couples who pray together would agree There is some kind of a special bond that occurs when you pray with each other. There's something about that. There's something that happens too when you pray regularly, daily, throughout the day for each other. God does something supernatural. I believe that. And some of you say, pray with each other. And I'm I'm uncomfortable with that. Well, do it anyway. Do it. And if your spouse critiques your words and your theology and all of that, just say, you know what? I need you to give me a break here. I'm just trying to talk to God, okay? I doubt that your spouse would do that. I hope not. Pray with each other. More than thanks for the food, amen. Maybe we can go a little further than that. I got to wrap. Um, I'm so grateful for the years I've been able to be a pastor because in being a pastor, I've had the opportunity to perform weddings. And today's your one month anniversary. We have a sweet couple who I just did their wedding a month ago. Yay, Sawyer and Caitlin. I told Caitlin I was probably going to point her out. So it's all good. It's all good. You know what the most important part of a wedding ceremony is by far? It's not you may kiss the bride. That's a good part. It's not I now pronounce you husband and wife. That's a good part. Here's the best part of a wedding. And some of us, when we hear a wedding or go to a wedding, we're reminded when we hear these vows. I... Put your name in there. I'll say Jeff. Take you, Kathy, to be my lawfully wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish Till death do us part. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, that marriage is your idea. You created it before sin entered the world. It is your master design for this covenant relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. 
you so much wanted protected and guarded and nourished and prayed for. There's so much that we can continue to grow in and do as married couples. Help us, help us. We need your grace, we need your wisdom. Help us. Thank you, Father, that in some ways all of us have messed up. We have blown it. We have not lived out what it means to be the earthly picture of Christ Jesus and his church, his bride. And yet we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your cleansing. We thank you that it's your heart to restore when your children fall. I pray this morning, Father, if there's a need for confession by anyone here that even now they would confess before you, whatever that is. So thank you, Father, for um, time to reflect upon the beauty of marriage and the dangers. Protect us, Holy Spirit. Fill our minds with your truth and help us above all else to pursue the godliness that Jesus Christ has called us to. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.